Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Paul T. Martin is the founder and CEO of 10 Capital and host of the Investor Connect podcast program. He launched the firm as the Texas Entrepreneurs Network in 2009. Today, 10 Capital has over 15,000 investors in its network and has helped startups raise over $900 million. Well, that's pretty impressive, Paul. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Great. Well, thanks for having me, Corey. I'm looking forward to it. Well, so listen, before we get into uh, a lot more details around, you know, this network you built and the and, and the investments type of deals you do and all that kind of stuff, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I assume somebody who's founded and runs an investor uh, network and the related things you do probably wasn't it at that age, but you you tell me. Oh, at 10 years old, I wanted to be a, a firefighter and then be a dentist. And not because that was really my passion, but because I knew people that did that. And that looked like cool work from a distance. Of course, <laughs> as I grew older and I saw exactly what they did, that looked less cool. And uh, over the years, I just developed a passion for startups and for entrepreneurs and innovation. I think innovation and entrepreneurship is what takes us through the challenges and uh, had dedicated myself to support those people in the in the market. I love it. And, and we're going to... You know, I, I want to hear about the journey there. So let's actually start out with my second question on the podcast, usually, which is, uh, what was your first deal of any type, as you remember? It could be something, you know, small as a kid when you were young or early in your career, whatever comes to mind. Oh, I had a friend that lived four houses up the block from me back when I was in elementary school. And he had this really cool looking dinosaur. And I wanted that. But um, I wasn't very good at negotiating back then. And so I gave him what was a tremendous amount of stuff to get that one little dinosaur. And later, later came to realize I need to get better at negotiating. It uh, didn't, he didn't trick me or anything. It's just, I, I wasn't really thinking it all the way through. What am I giving up? What am I getting? What am I really getting? And so that was a, a early lesson in life for sure. I love it. I love it. So let's talk about your journey too. So, so you've, you've gone from, uh, you know, learning your early negotiating skills on your dinosaur negotiating. And, uh, <laughs> and now we're, you know, we're at the point where you have this amazing, you know, investor network, but let's take it back even before, you know, 2009, when you, when you, when you first formed the entity, what's your background? What had you come to, to doing deals and putting together this, this network that helps people, you know, raise capital for various uh, startups? So when I graduated, I went to work for a company called National Instruments, and it was a measurement automation firm and had, uh, I was the uh, 93rd employee in it, and they later went public in 1995. And so I started doing angel investing after that. Austin at that point had an angel group called the Capital Network. They ran from 95 to 2002 and made an investment during that group and basically lost all my money. Okay, (laughs) this is harder than it looks. Again, another life lesson. 
And they were tied to the dot-com world. And when that went away, they went away with it. And just started doing angel investing with some friends around town. And then in 2006, the, the local chamber did a restart of the angel community. They called it the Central Texas Angel Network. And uh, I was the first person to sign up for it because it was a lot of work finding the deals and diligencing them. And I really wanted to learn from others is what I was looking for. And so I signed up. And when you're the first one to sign up, you're automatically on the board in charge of membership. It's, it's a great honor. You know, Pava is a great honor. And I did that for a year and I was able to recruit about 50 members and got the initial group formed and set the, the model going forward. And then we lost our director. So I became the director for the first two years. And long story short, we got a 40x return out of that initial uh, $5 million investment. You know, two or three deals were just uh, out of the park. And then the usual 25% made money, 75% lost money. It wasn't anything different, but we did have some home runs in there. And then my undergraduate uh, uh, university, Baylor, came to me and said, well, we want an angel network out of our alumni association. So I said, I'll, I'll help you put that together. And so I started process of setting that up. And the university did some interesting things with putting student curriculum in place for getting the students engaged. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was at the Central Texas Angel Network, I went to the University of Texas in Austin and I went to the Alumni Association and said, we ought to guys ought to have an angel network out of the university. And they were very interested in that, but I made a couple of mistakes there. Number one, I walked in there by myself. You never walk in by yourself. You go with a, a business school professor that's going to sponsor you and take care of you and so forth. And number two, you don't tell the university you're going to make them money. You talk about student engagement and job placement. And now, now we start to get attention. So from that mistake, I was able to correct and do better at the Baylor side of it, for sure. And then there was a county north of Austin called Williamson County. We called it Wilco. And I started the Wilco Angel Network because I had a number of people in the area that wanted to uh, invest in startups. And so after three Angel groups, I decided I really wanted to stay, go forward with working with the early stage. By then, the, the company I had started with was a big company. It wasn't really uh, on the innovation track anymore. And so I did an early retirement and started Texas Entrepreneurs Network. And we were at heart helping startups raise funding from angels. And then over the years, we just grew our investor network. I started going to the Bay Area in New York in 2010 to 15, because that's where most of them were concentrated to come into my network. And then 2016, I had a whole bunch of family offices coming in. They didn't want to invest in funds anymore. They wanted to go direct and not pay the carry and the fees and so forth. And in some cases that worked, in some cases it didn't. And then 2017, we started getting calls from outside of Texas saying, we want access to your investor pool, but we're not in Texas. How do we do this? So we renamed it 10 Capital. That's what 10 stands for, Texas Entrepreneurs Network. And we started doing our program around the country. And at heart, we call it funding as a service. We're helping startups find investors for their deal. We're helping angel groups find members for their group. And we're helping funds find limited partners for their fund. And so I it took a little bit of a different tack. I didn't want to be another fund. You know, there's a boom and bust cycle with that. You, know, you can raise and deploy a fund as long as you have good returns, you have a bad fund, you know, the, the game is over in some cases, you can't go and do it anymore. And so I, I wanted to get out of that cycle. And I, f- I found that there was a set of things that needed to be done, finding investors, preparing people and so forth, that was a bit of an evergreen. You were always doing that. It never goes away. And so that was a bit of a more steady business model. And so that's what we chose is to do funding as a service for the startup world. And it was a little bit more scalable as well. So that's how we got to where we are today. Great. So let's break it down a little bit. I mean, we have many listeners who are 
very sophisticated and know this space really well. We have other listeners who are, you know, earlier stage, or maybe they do other kinds of deals, but they're not that familiar with financing deals, et cetera. So let's really break some stuff down. So first of all, we're talking about angel, angel networks here, right? So how do you define an angel, right? Because, you know, there's, there's sort of a range of people that are called angels. So what is an angel to you? And uh, I guess uh, along with that, you know, who, who qualifies to be in your network? So is there an accredited investor? The Security Exchange Commission determines who's an accredited investor. Hasn't changed much since 1969 when they first said it. So the when they, when they took out the value of home of, of your home, uh, that was the one big change your house anymore. Uh-huh. But beyond right. that, it really hasn't changed. And so, right. you, you, as you can expect, more and more there's more angels now than there used to be for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think angels kind of came into being in the early 1980s with Hans Severin having dinner dinner meetings in the, the Bay Area with people. And that that model picked up and that dinner club model carried through and still is in use today. And so an angel is someone that just wants to invest in a startup for a return. Uh, they're not and they want to, you know, someone once said an angel wants to do a little good, have a little fun and make a little money. And so it kind of covers all three aspects. There's a there's a social component, there's a community component, and then there's a financial component. And I find that the deals that I did that were truly successful really hit all three of those marks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it hits just one or two, it, it comes up short in some way. So it's always important to remember it needs to hit all three to be truly successful for sure. But angels really are a key factor in the uh, community for building that uh, early stage next generation of companies. Yeah. And, you know, obviously not every company travels the same funding track and there are exceptions or whatever. But if you, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, listeners, this, you know, what, what, what the, some people would call the, you know, the, the track, the standard track is, you know, you got, you have maybe a friends and family around, you know, to start with, then you go to angel investors in the next round, you're doing your, your series A, or, you know, or you're bringing in, you know, a VC firm or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, the VC may be heading this, or the, the, you know, then you go, yeah, you BC, whatever it is. So um, to, in, in that light, uh, let's talk about what are the type of investments that these angels are looking for? What stage companies, what sectors, what size, you know, what are the characteristics of the startup companies that these kind of angels are looking to invest in? So a lot of angels like to support their local community. So they like the local geography aspect of it. And that's a little bit of the why behind angel groups is to support the ecosystem that they live in. And so angels look for you know evidence of traction. They want to want to see you go into the market and start to prove that you can sell it. They look for product validation and market validation. The product works and people will pay for it. About half the deals we see are technology deals, heavy concentrations around fintech and health tech, and re- more recently, ed tech coming up. Blockchain starting to come up on the radar there as well. About 25% of the deals we see are healthcare related, and there's digital health, that's the biotech and the devices and the diagnostics and the therapeutics there. And then 25% are in the consumer product goods space where it is food and beverage, health and wellness, uh, fashion, beauty, and marketplaces and e-commerce, those type of things are in that category. We may see more in the uh, alternative energy space coming up here soon. Some of those things can get quite, quite expensive and they can go out of the range of the angel investor. Software was always a great deal. Consumer products were always a great deal because they fit the amount of money angels are putting into it. So those are the, some of the sectors that we see going in. And like I say, uh, angels really want to see traction. You know, what I found the difference between angel and VC is the VC is spending someone else's money so they can take wild swinging bets. 
uh, when it's your money, and that's what Angel is all about, you, you don't really just want to see nine of them go under with the hope that the 10th is going to cover everything. And right. so you see a little bit more risk uh, aversion there. And so you want to see a little bit more on the table and you'll give up a little bit of the potential upside at the same time compared to some VCs. Cause when it's your money, uh, you, you have a, you know, capital preservation is a part of the discussion. Right. Although interestingly, uh, not, this isn't always the case, but Certainly there, you know, in, in some of the funding cycles, the angels are getting involved earlier than the VC folks. So, you know, they have additional risk because of the earlier stage, right? Right. They get better valuations in some cases than the VCs. So there is that. And so for the winners, it can be much more dramatic. Uh, but uh, there's also uh, signal to noise ratio is a bit of a challenge. There's a lot of startups out there. Which ones are really going to succeed is can be a little bit harder to pick out in some cases. But at the same time, you didn't bake your salary into the fund like VCs do. So you really don't have to have a 10X just to make it work. You can do well with three to five X. And that's what some people say is an angel investor wants to get three to five times your money in three to five years. And so if you can do that, that's a winning model also. And, you know, and I'm sure it varies by deal, but what is the range of uh, investment amounts that most of these angels are putting in? Well, it used to be the angels walked in the door with 50K checks and now 25K checks to plunk down. And I'm seeing more and more angels want to walk in with a 50K check and spread it across 10 deals, five for you, five for you, five for you. Uh, and then on the next round, when we start to see which one or two is making progress, we'll, we'll put bigger money in on that as well. So there's a little bit of a gamesmanship going there also. Love it. And, and talk to us about, uh, you know, we talked about sectors, but in terms of you know, stage and size of company, uh, you know, uh, I mean, pre-revenue versus post-revenue, obviously, if half the deals are in the tech space, I'm assuming there's a chunk of them that might be pre-revenue, depending upon the model. You know, talk to us a little bit about that. So most angels want to see uh, post-revenue companies that want to see you sell something to prove it works. Uh, you can do some pre-revenue, although with software deals and those where you can sell it, they really want to see you do so. If there's FDA involved, well, then there's going to be pre-revenue. And that's going to be a very different game as well. It's going to take a lot, much longer time. But of course, the payout will be much bigger if it makes it all the way through onto the other side. Sure. And let's talk about, all right, so, you know, we've gotten a feel who these people are and what they're, you know, what they're starting to invest in. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the classic mistakes? You know, what are some of the characteristics of the winners, so to speak? I mean, you know, so some people would present this as, as a, you know, as it is a crapshoot, you just bet not that you're going to get lucky and pick one out of 10. But obviously investors don't like to, you know, certainly would hopefully disagree and, and think that they're, they have a more, uh, you know, effective way they're doing due diligence and deciding on what to invest in and that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, talk to us about what are some of the criteria? I mean, yes, there is some level of, of chance that, that people know that not, you know, they're not going to invest in 10 out of 10 deals at the stage they're investing in. That's a given. But at the same time, uh, you know, there's something in between that and just throwing money at something and having to be a crapshoot. So how do folks make those educated decisions? What kind of due diligence do they do? Where have they made mistakes? I think the biggest mistake people make is they spend all the time focused on the, the current product and the current market market change and products uh, come and go. The team is what, what really is going to carry it all the way through. So when people ask me, what should I spend my time on? I say, 
yeah, you want to look at the product and the competition and that's part of the process, but spend time with the team, go out to the office, sit down and really map out what is really there. Oftentimes we're listening to the CEO, give us a pitch over zoom or in a group meeting. And uh, you know, of course that looks great. That sounds great. But what you really want to know is what's, what's really in the company today. Do they have the domain knowledge? Do they have the skills? Do they have the expertise? And then as you look at the competition and what they're trying to do, you can figure out what they need to have and then see how, how much of a gap that is there. There's always a gap, but if it's close and we can cover it, well, then this is great. If, uh, if it's a wide gap and we're not sure we're going to cover it, well, then that's the thing to worry about. It's often surprising what's actually in the business when you go out there. And that's why I always coach going to go do an on-site visit, walk in and see the offices. Mm-hmm. I had a friend invest in an a, a angel startup that was led by some ex-IBMers. And when they gave him the address, it took him to a skyscraper downtown. And these guys had rented out the entire 12th floor of the skyscraper. As you can guess, they ran out of money six months <laughs> in and never really got the thing <laughs> off the ground because they were spending money like crazy. And so you learn a lot when you go see them in their, their office and uh, meet them and see what, what, what is really there for sales skills, marketing skills, and the usual. So that's, that's the biggest mistake I think people make. Uh, the, the other is they're, they're looking at the, the latest hot thing, realize, not realizing that in one year, it will not be the hot thing anymore. It'll be right. having to stand on its own uh, value prop that is there. And you have to see that, you know, is that strong enough to carry it through? It's interesting because if you, any of the sophisticated investors that I talk to, I'm not talking about maybe sophisticated angels, but and certainly VCs and vertically folks, They'll tell you that, you know, that they, yeah, they focus number one on the team, right? You know, but what catches people's attention who are less experienced, right, is the, is that new hot idea, is that sector, is that, you know, next thing in, in whatever, in crypto or Bitcoin or whatever, whatever the thing's going to be at that at that time. So it's interesting to see how, you know, that, that development happens. You know, if, if um, it's just interesting to see, to see what happens. You know, this could probably answer the question around, uh, you know, how uh, angel investors learn, right? You know, they can learn the hard way by mistakes, but, you know, this sort of relates to me, maybe the, the questions of a benefit of being in an, in, in an angel network, right? As opposed to investing on your own. So talk to me a little bit about that. Like, you know, what, what, what are the advantages of people coming together in some of these networks? Sure. Yeah. So of course the, the investment methodology and the term sheets and the terminology, pre-money, post-money, can be very new and different. And it's a great way to learn is with other people, watching them, how they do it. And so I always recommended people join an angel network and share the deal flow, share the diligence that goes with it. There is a lot of work to be done. And if you're putting in a 25K check, you really don't have time to do all the diligence yourself. You need to be working with other people on it. And different people bring different skills and strengths to the table as well. That can be very helpful because most of the time you're looking at deals that are not in your area of expertise. Most angels are good business people, but they're learning about the other sectors that are out there. And that, that can take some time and have somebody, having somebody in the group that knows it can really help you get to the answer more quickly. Another way you can learn about angel investing, and one reason why I started a podcast program just like you have one, is 
I learned a lot from the Frank Peters show. It was a angel investor out of the Tech Coast Angels in Southern California that ran a podcast program where he interviewed people on how they invested. And they're real world people talking about how they diligence deals, how they made decisions, how they structured their fund and so forth. And I learned more from that than just about any other single education activity aside from doing it. So I started my program as well to teach people how you do angel investing. And a podcast was, I thought was a pretty good one because you're listening to someone tell it directly and straight up. So that's a useful resource also. So, so while we're here, I mean, I, I'm going to give an opportunity later for you to give general contact information, but you mentioned the podcast. So let folks know what the podcast is called. And, and uh, I assume they can find it on any of the relevant podcast players, but is, is there also a uh, URL, uh, you know, to your site or whatever for it? Uh, give them some idea on what it is and how to find it. Sure. It's uh, called Investor Connect. We were connecting investors with each other and with startups. And it's investorconnect.org. I set it up as a nonprofit. It's an education program as well. So it's easily found under investorconnect.org on on any of the uh, favorite uh, podcast uh, tools you may be using. That's awesome. And listen, folks, it's similar to my purpose for this podcast to get people a way that they can get familiar with all the different types of deals that can be done, you know, from raising capital, mergers and acquisitions and joint ventures, strategic alliance, licensing, you name it, affiliate deals, you know, we've talked about all of that. And then, you know, it's a way that somebody can come on and listen to the people who've done the deals, the, 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 the key advisors around deals and get educated. And, and certainly Hall's podcast really drills down much more and we cover it generally, but, you know, much more on, on, on this specific area of being an angel investor and investing in deals. So, you know, similar to the value you're getting here, definitely, uh, you know, I recommend going over and listen uh, to that podcast if you have any interest in in being an angel or if you're a company looking to raise angel capital. So let's go to that side of it, right? Let's talk about now, you, you know, you're, you're a company that is looking for funding. What do you need to do? What, when do you become uh, attractive to uh, an angel? What should you be doing in advance to, to be attracted to an angel? What sectors... You know, there there are just sectors that are not investable, right? You know, or types of companies that are not investable, uh, just in, in that way, at least. So, talk to us about that. You know, what who, who are the companies that that should look at this this, and then what do they need to do to be attractive and get prepared to attract angel investment? You know, we talked about product validation and market validation as just a criteria, but. When you start putting systems in place that you can have some repeatability and predictability around your sales, that, that's where it really starts to spark the eye of the investor because this is something that is proven and it's working and we can now start to grow and scale it. And so I always coach people in the early days when you go out, uh, test your model out. You know, go, I had one guy come to me once where he took $5,000 of his own money, put into Facebook ads, and he came out with a model that said X number of uh, people clicked on it, X number of people downloaded it, X number of people actually uh, engaged with it. And the average selling price was uh, this much money. And it uh, overall, it made money. The money he got out was more than the money he put in, and he knew what all the different ratios were. And that's, that's what investors really get excited for is because we now know the structure of this business. We don't just have revenue. We, we know what the conversion rates are and uh, how that's working. And with that, investors get excited because they know if they put $10,000 in, you know, everything doubles. They put 20000 everything goes up by four. And now we have a system that's repeatable and predictable. And so I always coach startups, talk about how you have systems that are repeatable and predictable already. 
And don't worry too much about the absolute size of the revenue. Worry about more about the conversion rates because those are the key metrics that really drive the business and show you know you have something and you know what you're doing. And um, and not everybody listens to me on that. Sometimes they think, well, no, I just have to have big revenue. But very few startups have big revenue, and so it it can be hard to convince investors uh, with what you've got. So you have to present it in such a way to show that this is a money pump and uh, we can make it bigger altogether. Yeah, you know, you hear that analogy often of investors wanting to put some fuel on the fire, you know, that, that you know, it's to be, be a catalyst, be an accelerator, you know, and that, and that concept of scalability. Uh, you know, and I think that's, listen, it, it's, you know, scale, scalability has been such an overused word, but in some ways, I think it's actually misunderstood, right? You know, it's not just about growth and size. It is about the systematizing. It is about this repeatability, right? It is about, it's, it's and I think that's a big distinction that some people miss, Right. You know, and and so so I'd lo- I love that you brought that up, and I don't know if you have any additional you know additional thoughts there based on what I said. Sure. Well, at the very seed stage, you're you're proving you've got the basic model, and then when you go for Series A, what you want to show is the repeatable, predictable process. When I worked at that big company, one thing we had was a business model that you put leads in at the top, you qualify them at the middle level, and then you close them with an internal sales function at the end. You tell me how much revenue you want. I'll tell you how many calls the we had to make and how many leads we had to put in and how many we had to qualify. And it worked like clockwork. And that's the kind of thing you want to get to is systems that are repeatable and predictable because now you know how to scale it up. Of course, when you get from growth to scale, you're really doing not just adding more salespeople, you're really putting in new systems that can really work at the higher level to get you the numbers you need. But you know where you need to go because the numbers are there and you know what the model looks like. And that's the real thing you want to find as a startup is what does that model really look like? So testing it is key. I I knew people that test all the different channels and social medias and coming up with the conversion rates. And that's very, very important because you figured out what the, the lowest cost channels are, how far those channels can go before you have to go to the higher cost ones. And that that's always very impressive to investors if you have that. Yeah. I mean, having right conversion rate, those stats are so key. I mean, remember I, you know, I saw, I was at a in-person talk with Kevin O'Leary and while, while I like Shark Tank in that it has exposed a lot of people to, you know, uh, some of this stuff, it's also a very artificial environment and half the deals don't actually close that say they were going to fund it or whatever. So you know, <laughs> it's a, there's a lot, you know, that you got to be careful when you look at it. But one of the things I do like that, you know, Kevin O'Leary talks about on the, on that show a lot and talked about in his private talk is the fact that, you know, one of the biggest things that he looks at is customer acquisition cost. And one of the biggest things that a show like Shark Tank does is actually bring down the customer acquisition cost <laughs> because of the exposure that they get. You know, it's a, it's a big uh, double whammy in a positive way in that not only do the investors come in and put fuel on the fire, but because of the exposure they get on the show, it brings down that key metric, which is customer acquisition cost. And, and it's why they want folks to know what that is, right? Because then you can tell, okay, great. If this is what it costs to cost, you know, to get a customer, then if we add X dollars to the to the sales or marketing or whatever, or the, the flow, we should be able to increase that. Plus you get that double benefit with Shark Tank because you get all this exposure. So it should bring down the, you know, the, the, that cost. So I got you. Yeah. Okay, that makes so, sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was, you know, it was interesting that he focused on that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, all right, that really makes sense. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, 
I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, your particular services. You said you used, you know, the term as a service, right? Which which a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, you know, software as a service has become, you know, <laughs> a big conversation in the last 15, 20 years, right? Uh, let's talk about what, you know, what does that really mean? How does that distinguish you from the way you provide these services to folks to what other folks do in the space as well? Sure. So most groups are raising funds and then deploying the funds or they're recruiting members and they're, you know, guiding that into startups and so forth. And what I found is, is that uh, the investor world is not that different from selling, uh, you know, raising money from investors has got the same funneling process as selling your product itself. And I found very few people would look at it that way. Investors were different in some way. Well, it's still a numbers game. You have to talk to a certain number of investors. You have to have an ideal investor. You have to have a compelling offering, all, all the same things apply. And so we, we help people find more investors for their deal, whether it be a startup or a fund or an angel group, but you have to, it's a numbers game. I have to go out and get a uh, hundred people off LinkedIn that are interested in an angel group of which 10 are going to be interested and of which three are actually going to pull the trigger on it and join the group because there's fees and time and all that involved. And so it's just a numbers process to go out and run people through those systems. And we help many angel groups find members. And I think I'm the only one that's actually out advertising. Everyone else is just talking to their buddies here or there. And that's one way to do it. It can be harder to get um, your your numbers in where you're doing it one by one personally as opposed to online, but you can do it as well. And so, and same thing for fundraising. We we have what we call the funding funnel. When people come in, we we you know do a pitch. We put them on the list. We have to do updates to them. Uh, when I ran Angel Networks, what I witnessed is entrepreneurs coming in and pitching to my room full of investors. 90% would pitch once, go away. We would never hear from them again. And they got no money out of it. 10% came back and gave us updates and reminders. And on the fourth update, out came the checkbooks. It was like mm-hmm. clockwork. You just have to go through the process to get to the conversion rates that you need. And as the market goes forward, you have to get more and more people coming in on your deal. So we help them with that. So funding as a service means we'll help you find more investors. We'll do more mailers. We'll do more uh, asks and we'll get more people converting into the deal over time. And, and you're doing this for some sort of, in some sort of fee structure, as opposed, meaning like, uh, you know, paid for services as opposed to taking a success fee on the deal or things like that, or, or is this a success fee part of what you do? Well, we can't take a success fee because uh, when I looked at starting Texas Entrepreneurs Network, I looked at the broken model, but found mm-hmm. I was going to lose a major part of my angel group and VC fund network because many of them don't allow brokers to be in the deal. Their yep. fund doesn't allow money to go out for a deal that's got a fee on it like that. So we charge the retainer model. Like I say, it's a... Uh, uh, it's a, it's a process. And my rule is for every, for the early stage, for every million dollars you're trying to raise, it will take you one calendar year to raise it. And about six to nine months of that, you're out pitching to investors. Uh, and so it's really a, an ongoing process. And it's not just a one and done thing, unless you're raising a small amount from just family and friends. Where we come in is just after the family and friends is over. Now we're raising money from other people and we have to start uh, you know, getting out to more people. So now um, for both the angel networks and for the companies, 
you're you're making key connections, right? You're you're reaching out, you're marketing, you're making key connections. Obviously, you have a big huge network already. And then, uh, are there other services around that? You know that that you do. So, in other words, like the company obviously has to be like we talked about a little while ago. The company has to be prepared to and be attractive, right, to these investors. So, are you providing services that help them get ready, or they, they package themselves in any way? Are you, you know, and what about after the introduction? What's the scope of you know the other things you do? So up front, you need documentation. You need a pitch deck. You need a diligence box or what they call a data room. You need three to five year financial projections. You need you know key documents in that box. And so we help them gather those things up. We help make the deck look uh, more professional and fill in the, the missing pieces that might be there as well. We help them with structuring the raise. The most common thing I get is you know, a startup saying, I need to raise $5 million dollars. Well, what they're really saying is over the life of the company, I'll raise five million. And then we're coaching them on how we break this down into smaller steps. Let's start with 500 and then let's go to 750 and more. Because if you raise $5 million on the current valuation, you're giving away too much equity. And, That's right. and you'll, you'll spend the next three years doing nothing but raising funding anyway. So might as well break it into smaller steps. And so we're coaching them on the strategy of milestoning and structuring the deal. And then we talk about valuations. What What's the appropriate valuation for this? We, we see the market every day so we can give them a read as to where the numbers are that we're seeing from other people. It does go up and down with the stock market. We have to kind of roll with that. And it was very high there for a while last year. It's coming back down now, which is a good thing. I wonder how we're going to make money out of some of those valuations that we put into last uh, fall, sure. but we'll see how that works out. So, so those are some of the services we do up front. And then when they get into a, a working with an investor, we, we always, if they're negotiating the valuation, we, we, we remind them that valuation is not a formula. It's a negotiation approach it that way. So there's lots of coaching along the way about how to work with investors and how to uh, close the funding itself. And then if they need help along the way, sometimes they need a CFO or they need a CTO, whatever, we can make introductions on that front. But for the most part, it's helping them get, get the deal ready and getting it out there for sure. And despite the uh, the Austin, Texas pillow in your background for people looking on video and and, and the Texas uh, Entrepreneurs Network uh, original naming, you don't limit this uh, your service to Texas uh, these days, correct? That's right. We work around the country and we've had taken some deals from overseas, UK, Israel and other places. And over time, we'll, we'll do more as well. Right now, most people still want U.S. money. And so uh, the rule is you really need to have someone on the U.S. time zone to go out and work with investors. It can be hard to do this from a distance. And so we, we do that. And many investors are still wanting uh, Delaware C corporations. It is moving global. It's moving global very quickly. And so in a couple of years, I think we'll see people investing in other parts of the world with more confidence. Great. So any other thoughts, uh, you know, in the market generally? I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, valuations uh, last year versus now. You know, it's been interesting to see. I mean, it's certainly by sector. I mean, you know, we do a bunch, for example. Yeah, I think I think I've seen that evolution in tech uh, valuations, for example. But in financial services, specifically in investment advisory space, which we do a lot in, valuations have stayed or continued to to go up in that market. There's been so much more money that's come into that space. So, yeah, obviously it's by sector, but, uh, you know, overall, what are, what are some of the trends you're seeing, whether it's uh, overall market or by sector or, you know, anything, anything you're seeing out there? Yeah, the, the hot sectors now, of course, are blockchain. We see those going way up because it's clear this 
is now real applications, real networks, and we're getting real benefits and it's the next generation. So there's, there's now a, a rush to that. There are even developers are moving over there. Heard the quote the other day, there's more people that have been in outer space than can develop on Solana. And so many developers are moving there because, you know, the rates will be very much higher, of course. You know, at, coming out of the pandemic, we, we basically are starting a whole new startup cycle here, whole new set of care abouts, whole new market terrain to work with, whole new uh, landscape that we need to deal with, whole new set of problems, which is exciting because it's always fun to start off a new cycle with new promises, new technologies, and new challenges that are coming up. I think the, the Web 2.0 world, the walled gardens are probably going to be falling away and being replaced by Web 3.0. I think the world is a little bit tired of the uh, the big tech uh, monopolies and they want to see it break out into more people being participating in those things. So it doesn't just all concentrate into the hands of a few. So we're seeing that trend a lot where it's really going out and about. Seeing a lot of interest in data, being able to monetize your data, control your data, work with your data. Uh, Most of the startups I get now, they come to me with a service and then we talk to them, well, are you planning to do anything with the data? Most of them have a vision of putting data in it and monetizing the data and so forth. So we talk to them about capturing all your data from day one into clean, well-structured sets because you need good amounts of data. And if you want to monetize the data, one of the things we're always talking about is make sure you give a name to everything you have. Every product, every technology, every platform, every data set should have a name. Mm-hmm. If you don't, can't put a name on it, investors can't give you credit for it because they don't know it's there or don't realize it's there. And I find many, many people have the vision of selling their data, but they haven't given a name for it or any structure. And so it, it goes unnoticed. And then after you have the, you know, from service to the data to next step is if you want to, you can layer AI algorithms on top of it. Mm-hmm. And you're typically we ask, we add a roadmap slide into the deck that talks about how the platform will develop over time, because it takes a lot to go and put uh, the core system together and then even more to put the data together and then more. And so you really need to spread that out into separate generations, but your valuation will take a jump up uh, tremendously as you make each stair step function up. But my thesis is, is that everything is going online. I mean, everything is going online. So you have to look at how everything is going to be connected or represented online. You see NFTs coming up now, very strong. Well, they're just representing art and so many other things online. And pretty soon mortgages and those will be represented by NFTs as well. You can fractionalize, you can share, you can store, you can keep track of all this stuff in a big way. We had some early stage contacts do do the mortgage thing several years ago, but the mortgage market wasn't quite ready for it. And that's one thing you have to think about is, is the market ready to pick this up? It's a very staid industry. Uh, uh, They've been doing it for so many years that way that they're really not gonna be the first ones out the gate to do it. Uh, But it is an ideal application for many of the blockchain technologies coming up. We're seeing a lot of movement in that direction as well. Yeah, it's really interesting to me. And, and I, you know, I have to admit, I'm playing some catch up on, you know, on, on, on blockchain, uh, you know, and really understanding it, it right. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, a, a tech guy, although I have so many clients in this space and I really, but I've really delved into it. And it's, you know, for me during my professional lifetime, it's the first time that really reminds me of when, you know, when the internet, right. Was really becoming commercially viable. Like, like it's that level, you know, or even beyond some people say, I can't think of another equivalent that really is that level for me. And I remember, 
Yeah, there's two things that, that you you said that jogged the memory of a of an uh, early uh, client who's still a good friend of mine, and he's uh, you know who uh, in the '90s um, and I've told this story, but it's been a while probably on the podcast. In the '90s, had a company. This is pre-internet. Um, and he had a great idea to um, uh, gather information on schools and school districts. So when somebody was moving to a new neighborhood, right, a lot of people the the second most asked question after you know price. Is how are the schools, right? Most people have kids or they're planning to have kids or whatever, or even if you don't have kids, it affects the quality of the neighborhood and tax base and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, back then there was no, there was no internet, right? So there was no way to gather. So, you know, my client used to have people who would call, literally call the schools and go through publicly available things or whatever and pull down, get all these statistics manually, right? You know, of average SAT scores, percent of kids that go to college, what programs the school had available in terms of like music or athletics or special ed or, I mean, you name it, like all this dead, these data points that now you would Google, right? But didn't, <laughs> like you just were not findable back then. And the model was, which was, which was fascinating, was to create these reports as a service for real estate agents. So when somebody came into a real estate agent and said, hey, I'm thinking about moving to, you know, Stanford or Wilton or, you know, whatever, Connecticut, you know, how are the schools instead of saying, oh, they're, they're good, you know, they say, <laughs> hey, you know, uh, well, I can get your report, right? And it could compare, well, you there were certain issues legally with, with doing comparisons, and but you can give right. stats on all three and people can do their own comparisons. Um, and it became, so, and it was, a, so this is the interesting thing about it. One, it was a, uh, you know, gathering all this information that was available. Two, is a subscription model for real estate, you know, agents, right? Now, back then, subscription models weren't all the all the rage. Now, everybody's trying to get a subscription. And, you know, and it created um, a recurring income based on the subscription model. Um, but so, so, uh, so first of all, it was a data play. Second of all, the interesting part for me, like you said, was, you know, some people don't get it. Like back then, uh, we, we did an interesting, what I call the participation interest um, uh, raise of capital, where we gave actually people a participation in a portion of revenue from a geographic territory, you know, from the subscription revenue from these real estate investors, because Neil had done a friends and family round and given away, you know, and he didn't want to, you know, his developer, all these people had equity and he didn't want to give away a lot more equity. So he did this revenue participation. Then he raised venture capital. And the interesting part was there was a, a VC firm back then who was a significant player. But when the internet was coming in and when when my client realized that this is an internet play, right? What else is it going to be? He's, you know, he's got all this information. They were not investing in internet, right? I mean, right. people can't even like imagine that now, right? That there was a major, you know, uh, uh, VC fund that wasn't investing in internet. And so they wouldn't fund. And we, we actually negotiated to take them out of 10 cents on the dollar um, because they wouldn't fund any further. You know, and we ended up ended up selling the company to you know to Central Newspapers as a subsidiary of their new data play, and then they sent it to then they sold it again to one of the online players. So it was double sale. But my point is that you know it's I, this time sort of reminds me you know of that like you know blockchain and everything. It's not you were talking about how mortgages all this stuff. This is not just something over there. This is something like the internet that's going to be you know, underlying, you know, create a whole ecosystem, a whole, you know, that's underlying everything, you know, we do. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize that that's the case. Uh, and I'm, you know, I, I'm realizing it and delving in and learning more myself. I'm part of an expert, but that's the way I see it. I don't know if that's your feeling as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's the next generation, but it's going to bring a lot more capabilities. And I'm amazed as 
one of the one of the consequences of putting everything online is that now everything has a what we would call a data stack. Even a car, for example, has nine layers in it. You know, the application layer, the communication layer, the transport layer, just like you do communication. Well, there's a version of that in a car because now you have to run applications over it. It's not just a you know, um, ECU engine control unit that does a few things down in the firmware, you're actually running applications that do very complex things. And so, and everything has that IOT devices have a, a stack that you have to work with. And, you know, even, even if you're building a data product, you have to think about the data stack. How do you store the data? How do you communicate the data? How do you analyze the data? Where does it go? And if you're a data-driven company, it's even more com- complex. And so you have to start looking at the tech stack that's behind everything and then how it interrelates. So it's a very fascinating time. Uh, the, the paradigm is kind of the same, but but it is a whole bunch of new names and technologies and capabilities to start to come to grips with. Yeah, and it's interesting. And you're right. I mean, obviously, there are much more data-driven companies, but you know, almost everything is data related now. Whereas back then, I, mean, I remember uh, saying to my client at some point, you know, his model originally was subscription revenue. And I said to him, that's not going to be your biggest, you know, the, the biggest value you, you have. Um, because he actually went through a stretch, you know, when the VC wouldn't fund the next round where, you know, he was on the verge of being out of capital and all that kind of, you know, everything that happens. Never. And I said, listen, the value you have is in the data. Like at that time, think about it. He was getting data on people who were about to move, right? They would go, they were three to six months out from, you know, from moving. And so all of these companies, you know, when you move, you know, folks nowadays, right? You know, you get what, what they still do this. They, they check the deed records. And when they deed, deed change hands, suddenly you get, you know, all these offers from various these companies, you know, to, for your internet and for your, you know, whatever. But, you know, this company had that information originally pre-internet, you know, three, six, nine months, you know, a year before people were going to, you know, they knew they were looking at moving to Connecticut. Where else could you get that information? So that data I knew was super valuable. And especially when, when it you know, went online, you know, that like nobody else was gathering that kind of information, you know. So so it's interesting how that was sort of a new concept back then. And now so many companies that aren't even data place first still have this valuable, you know, data that they can leverage. You know, that's definitely a big Big, big difference. That is a, a great new resource as well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, before I uh, give you an opportunity to just talk about where people can find out more about you and ask you my last question, any, any other things come to mind? Any, you know, any big trends, anything you haven't shared yet, any uh, horror stories, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> no, we just love working with startups. I find it's still the same model from when I started to today of coaching people they have big visions and big dreams. And then we're talking about the path to taking it to market. I think one of the, the common things I see is people envision a product and the mistake they make is they, they want that on day one. And, you know, the company I talked about earlier, I remember starting in 1986 there, and they were talking about all the great dreams and things they were going to do with it. And I can say they honestly got there. 35 years later. So the full vision is going to take you a lifetime to get there. So you have to go to market with what you can deliver. And it's a greatly reduced version. Some people have a hard time with that. You have to get into the market with something. And then from there, you can start to build these beautiful visions that you can grow and scale. But what you're going to market with is going to be a faint resemblance of what it might be one day. And you have to be okay with that because you have to start somewhere. You have to start with what you can build and afford to build 
build and so forth. So we talked to a lot of people about what I call the vision problem, where you, you have to get to market with something. And the rule of software development is it takes six months to build, six months to sell. If you can't build it in six months, you're scoping it too broad. Uh, that's the most common mistake. And then if you can't sell it in six months, well, then you built the wrong thing. So what we are building, somebody's got to be paying for, uh, preferably prepaying for. And a lot of people don't take that mentality to it. They think, no, no, I've got to give them a free version. Well, in the go-to-market, you're really not going to have the ability to do too much free, maybe an app here or there. But for the most part, you're going to have to get people paying for something right up front. And so those are some of the things we deal with when we go out and work with startups. Yeah, I love that, that vision, the vision problem. I, lo- I love the way that's phrased. And, and listen, that's the whole reason why in the startup world, you have these terms like MVP, you know, minimum viable product, iteration, pivot, you know, like this is, these are all the language of, hey, you know, we got to get something out there and we got to evolve it, you know, <laughs> over time. I mean, that's the way, that's the way it works, right? And, and uh, you know, it's, it, which is, goes back to something that you said earlier, which is why, like investing in the management team and not their current product, you know, or, or idea of a product is is key, right? Because, you know, many of the successful companies move so far away from what they originally thought they were going to do. Some, sometimes it's it's a significant just iteration of what the concept, but sometimes it's actually totally in a different direction, right? I mean, that's just practically what happens, you know? Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Paul, uh, if people, I know you gave some information on the podcast, but if people want to find out more about you generally and, um, you know, the angel networking services you provide and all that kind of stuff, what's the best place for them to find you? Uh, probably our website, 10capital.group. That's T-E-N capital dot G-R-O-U-P. There's no dot com on that. The dot coms were taken up years ago. And so 10capital.group is our, our main website where we provide the funding as a service and you'll find me on there in many ways. Excellent. Um, so all oh, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom for all people from oppression in the world to why I'm an entrepreneur and have it out of boss in, in, in many decades. Um, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Uh, freedom means I get to uh, innovate any way I want and I get to express myself any way I want within bounds. And so that's what freedom is. And in the startup world, you, you have the ability to go out and make uh, something better for everyone to use is the, the best use of freedom itself. Is, is I think some people get hung up on the, the technical terms of freedom, which means I can burn a flag if I want to. But uh, I think there's also a responsibility of doing something with the freedom. And that means doing something useful aside from just uh, proving it can be done. You're actually building something. Love it. Love it. Well, Martin, thank you so much for being a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Corey. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.